Welcome to this International Development Public Lecture with Felix Salmon, Sovereigns, Vultures, and Ignoble Cowardice. I'm Ken Shadlin in the Department of International Development. Let me briefly introduce uh, Felix, and then we'll uh, begin the evening. Uh, Felix Salmon is a financial journalist and blogger with quite a large footprint and presence in the media. He's a senior editor at Fusion. Um, he's the host of a popular weekly podcast, Slate Money, which I enjoy, Felix. For a long time, Felix wrote for Reuters. I think that's where probably he made his name. His blog at Reuters won the 2012 Gerald Loeb Award for Financial Journalism that's awarded by the School of Management at UCLSA, UCLA. Excuse me. And in last year, he left Reuters to Perfusion. Felix knows a lot about a lot of topics, including art and all sorts of other interesting things. What I know about Felix is that he knows a lot about sovereign debt, um, a real lot about sovereign debt, and that's what he'll be talking about tonight. Just by way of background and to complete this, I, um, those of you who are in the audience who uh, are in my course on DV424, on International Political Economy of Development, or I've got a different title now, but don't worry about that. Uh, no, we deal with sovereign debt. And in 2007, a student who was taking that course sent me a blog entry that Felix wrote, I'd never heard of you before, 2007, called In Defense of Vulture Funds, which was incredibly thoughtful. It was also incredibly long, but it was incredibly thoughtful, provocative, full of insights. It was absolutely great. So I've been, re I've been reading Felix's work since then, for about eight years now, we just met for the first time 30 minutes ago tonight. Uh, but what happened is in this last summer, when the Argentine crisis hit the nth sort of iteration of the Argentine crisis, and Felix was again writing insightful, provocative stuff, it occurred to me that he's British. Maybe he, at some point he comes back through the UK. So I sent him an email out of the blue saying, Felix, I teach at LSE. If you ever come back through the through London, would like to give a public lecture, it would be great. And here we are. So um, we're looking forward to it. Thanks very much for fitting us into your schedule, and um, really looking forward to your talks. Everybody help join me in welcoming Felix to the stage. Um, um, thank you. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you remembered that piece from 2007, which was... Um, because, because I, I do believe in vulture funds. I believe they perform a very useful service in the debt ecosystem. And I'm going to say a lot of rude things about vulture funds tonight. But that doesn't mean that they're necessarily all evil and bad. We're going to come to that. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit intimidated, I have to say, by this lineup of individuals behind me. I feel like there's, you know, I'm, now, I'm now being lumped in with Nelson Mandela and... Ben Bernanke and Bill Clinton, but ignore them because we're going to be talking about much more boring stuff, much, much drier stuff. Sovereign debt restructuring, I, I'm absolutely astonished that you all um, came out for this thing because it is, I'm, I'm obsessed with it. I, I love talking about sovereign debt and sovereign debt restructuring and Harry Passu and collective action clauses, but I just never expect anyone else to care about these things. So well done you. For, 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 taking, for coming out. Um, and I want to talk to you guys. I want to, to take some questions and to answer your questions and to talk this through a bit because it's a hard thing to understand. I don't know exactly how much all of you know and how much all of you don't know. So I'm going to try and leave um, a decent amount of time for, for questions afterwards. But I also, I think one of the reasons why it's normally 
why, why, why people ask so many questions normally is because I do tend to dive in at the deep end a bit. So I'm going to try and do a little bit of sort of scene setting this today, which is something I don't, I don't normally do. As a blogger, you iterate and you just do like the next um, version. You know, the, you, you try and keep up and you assume everyone's caught up already. And so I'm going to try and take this opportunity. I'm very, I'm very glad that Ken invited me to do this because it really forced me to think through where does this all begin? Where does this all start? Um, and when, in this story in particular, the Argentine story, as, as Ken said, sovereign debt is a big thing. I'm just going to talk basically about Argentina um, with a couple of little <coughs> forays into the rest of the world. And there are really three um, actors here. This is the, the three. You've got the sovereign, which is Argentina. You've got the vulture, Elliott Associates, which is this hedge fund run by um, this you know, secretive billionaire called Paul Singer, who's, you know, the, he's straight out of a cartoon villain um, book. And we have the ignoble cowards, who are um, the U.S. judiciary. Um, you've got these three very, very unsympathetic actors. You, you often find in the world of vulture funds and sovereign debt that, you, that it's quite easy to turn this thing into a sort of black and white, that you have some highly indebted poor country, to use a technical term, uh, you know, which is suffering under the weight of loads of debt, and then you have some evil vulture trying to get paid when there are you know, children starving and that kind of thing. And so you get the white hat and the black hat quite easily. In this case, they, they all have black hats. They're none of them sympathetic, which often makes for a kind of more interesting drama. Um, but don't, just don't think that this reduces, especially when you when, when Argentina defaulted, there was a lot of media coverage about the default this last time. And there was a huge amount of temptation on the part of the media to reduce it all into this sort of black and white, good and bad um, spec, you know, way of looking at life. And I don't think you can, really. So prepare for a little bit of complexity here. Um, and let's begin at the beginning, which is the whole concept of sovereign debt. There's this guy called Walter Riston, who was the CEO of Citibank from the late 60s to the early 80s. And he used to say all the time, he used to say, countries don't go bust. That was his slogan. He would lend huge amounts of money to Latin America, and the people would say, this isn't very wise. He'd go, so countries don't go bust. And in a way, he's right. Um, they don't go bust. There's no bankruptcy code for sovereigns. If you lend money to a country, there's no way that a judge can come in and extinguish that debt. You're, that debt is yours forever. Um, there's no way that the debt can get restructured unless you basically agree to it. Um, you know, you, so there's no protection from hostile creditors if you're, if you're a country. There, there's... So this is a unique and very special thing about sovereign debt, which is not true of any other kind of debt. You know, individuals can go bankrupt, municipalities can go bankrupt, states can go bankrupt, but sovereigns cannot. That's kind of the definition of what a sovereign is. And so you're never going to see a court-organized reorganization of sovereign debt. So what that means is because... Sovereigns do default, of course. They, you know, you can't, they don't always pay their debts. But when they do default, 
you, you're not going to get a judge come in and sort things out like you would if it was a company defaulting or an individual. There's no, in, if you think about it, that makes sense because bankruptcy is basically, this is one of my favorite ways of thinking about bankruptcy, that it's basically a change of ownership. You take the people who used to own the company, you kick them out, and you replace them with the people who lent to the company. Um, and obviously you can't change the ownership of a country. The country is the way we normally consider it, sort of basically run by and for its citizens. You can't just kick them all out and replace them with the lenders. So that's what it means to be sovereign, right? You can't... There's no sort of quasi-judicial power which is going to sort of swoop in and, and reorganize the sovereign's financial affairs. It's going to have to do it itself. Um, and then this is, you know, which also is interesting if you think about where Greece is right now, you know, that there kind of is this quasi-judicial power in the EU which, you know, can come in and tell it what to do and tell it what to do with its debts and that kind of thing. And that's an indication in the case of Greece that maybe Greece isn't really sovereign. I think one of the things that we're seeing um, is that there are increasing numbers of cases now where you get nominally sovereign countries which aren't actually sovereign. There was another interesting example back in 2003 when um, the UN Security Council passed something called Resolution 1483. And what that did was it basically allowed Iraq to do a massive um, sovereign debt restructuring. Iraq, Iraq is the single biggest sovereign debt restructuring you've never heard of. And one of the reasons that... Iraq was so big, and or the, one of the reasons you haven't heard of it is because it just happened very quietly under the auspices of Resolution 1483. It was called a stay on enforcement of debts, which basically meant you can't sue Iraq as long as this resolution is in place. The resolution got renewed a few times, and by the time it was all over, it got 90% haircut. It, got, it managed to reduce its debts by 90%. It was very clean, um, very easy, and in, in a weird way, the UN Security Council was to Iraq, basically, as the EU is to Greece. It was this kind of quasi-judicial body which helped to make things happen from the top down. But if you're hit by a financial crisis, like Argentina was, um, or if you are a genuine sovereign, like Argentina is, um, then you don't get that. You're on your own. And Argentina, of course, as anyone who knows anything about Argentina knows, is a very proud country. You know, Argentines are very proud individuals, and they're never going to, you know, let anyone else tell them what to do. So that's the the big picture. You have the sovereign who cannot is not subject to a bankruptcy court. But the flip side is because it's sovereign, it's in charge of itself. It's immune. Its assets are shielded. There's this doctrine of sovereign immunity, which is that if you are a sovereign, uh, you, your assets cannot be attached by a court. Or, um, you, know, you have this wonderful thing called sovereign immunity. Even your naval ships have sovereign immunity. If you may remember, there was this Argentine ship which got impounded in Ghana uh, a couple years ago by, by Elliott Associates, by the hedge fund, and then... The, there was an international court in The Hague which said, no, you can't do that. Um, Argentina is immune. So what you have is this tension, right? On the one hand, you have the case that because there's no bankruptcy court, there's no one, there's no judge who can force a creditor, who can force a lender to take a haircut to restructure. 
the, the bondholders, you know, most, most sovereign lending these days is done not by banks but by, by institutional lenders who, who buy bonds. Um, so the bondholders can always, if they're sovereign default, they can always go to court, they can always get a judgment, they can always find a judge to say, yes, you're owed this money, which, big work. Like, that doesn't actually help you very much. Um, and on the other hand, you have, it doesn't help you very much because you have the sovereign immunity. So, you know, that's the tension, that's the kind of thing which the, the, the courts have been very good, especially the U.S. courts. Most sovereign lending is done either under New York law or under London law, and both New York courts and London courts have been pretty assiduous about maintaining this balance. They'll give the creditors all the judgments that they want, and they'll also give the debtors pretty much all of the immunity they want. And so you get this tension in the way you Relieve, you know, resolve the tension is by talking to each other and coming to some kind of agreement in the shadow of the, the judicial um, tension there. So that basically worked for, for many decades, and everyone kind of thought that was just kind of baked into the international legal system until you had the Argentine default in 2002, 2003, and then that just changed everything. It was the biggest default in the world at the time. It was the biggest until Lehman Brothers went bust. It was in, insanely complex. And, um, and so that's what we're going to talk about. The, again, I think it's important to go back a little bit to, um, to, to place this in a little bit of context. Argentina was... The, the default was really big because it owed a lot of money. The reason it owed a lot of money was because it had borrowed them a lot of money, and the reason it had borrowed a lot of money was because everyone was lending to Argentina. The bankers would fly down there. The IMF would fly down there. They'd land in Buenos Aires. I don't know how many of you have been to Buenos Aires, but it's this very lovely, sunny boulevards, and, and you know, it feels very European. It feels quite Italian. Everyone's white. Everyone's well-educated. It's got more psychologists per capita than any other country in the world. Um, it, there's a bookstore on literally every corner. And so it feels very, you know, affluent when you're, when you're in Buenos Aires. And so the bank, everyone would fly down and go, oh, these guys are just like, you know, the Europeans we know and love. And so they would lend loads of money. Um, so that was one, one way it got into debt. And then, you know, the other thing is Argentines were incredibly proud. And so even when it became obvious that the debt wasn't sustainable, they kept on making matters worse. The IMF was saying you should really just, you know, default on your debt. This is not sustainable. The U.S. Treasury was saying this. Even towards the end, like, the bankers on Wall Street were saying this. But the Argentines... You know, when the president was, was Carlos Menem, the, the finance minister was Domingo Cavaggio, they were saying, no, 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 we must never, we will never, we're Argentine, we will never default. And, and they just kept on, you know, they found themselves in a the, in the hole and they just kept on, like, digging faster, basically, borrowing more and more money at higher and higher rates. So in December 2000, they managed to borrow $14 billion from the IMF. The IMF subsequently realized, you know, they, they have this mea culpa report saying that was really stupid. Um, they borrowed a huge amount of money from their own domestic banks, so they managed to weaken all of their domestic banks as well. They kept on borrowing money from the markets, and there was this wonderful thing where there's this thing called the MB, the Emerging Market Bond Index, and all of the emerging 
market bond fund managers would benchmark that index and try and beat it. And then there were passive investors in the index who just try and meet that you know, as, a, as an allocation. And Argentina, because it was the biggest borrower, had the biggest allocation in the index. And so people would just keep on throwing money at Argentine bonds because they were benchmarking the index. It's completely insane. But basically, the more indebted you become, the more money people throw at you. Um, and then there's the, there there's the, oh, bless him, Domingo Cavallo, the finance minister. In May 2001, he does this thing called the mega swap. Like he cannot find the money to pay off his maturities, which are maturing in just a few months. So he swaps all of those bonds into much higher-yielding bonds, which he doesn't need to pay off for a few years. All he does is he buys himself a few months, but he massively increases the debt load of the country by doing so. Oh, and at the same time, he borrows another $8 billion in the IMF. Argentina, it's, it's, they're so keen not to default that they wind up piling way more debt on themselves than they would ever sensibly do. So when the inevitable happens in January 2002, Argentina has way more, stock, way more debt than it should have, and there's complete chaos. I, I can't remember whether they had three or four or five presidents over the course of about a week. They're, everything's going wrong. Um, they devalue because that was the other thing which they were adamant that they would never do is they pegged the Argentine peso one-to-one to the dollar, and that went straight out the window. So because they devalued and the peso went down to sort of three to the dollar, what you had was the debt-to-GDP ratio of Argentina going from 55% to 165% overnight. And so then, you know, with, with interest rates in, high double, in double digits and Oh, and did I mention there was this massive, brutal recession where GDP went down by 28%? So, oh, 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 wait, that's not enough. You also have the mother of all banking crises. Every single bank in Argentina becomes insolvent, right? So the, the government is insolvent. The banks are all insolvent. There's a huge um, recession. You have really nasty inflation. There's a big de- devaluation. There's no political anyone in charge. It took a while for Nesta Kirchner to come in and sort of consolidate political power. So in the midst of all of this crisis, it's just complete chaos. Is this is the, is the biggest bond default that the world had ever seen. There's nothing planned about it. There's nothing, um, you know, there's no advisor saying, well, this is the way you should do it, and this is what you should, you know, none, 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 nothing like that. And so when the smoke clears and you get this new populist president um, emerging from this uh, obscure province, Nestor Kirchner, what he winds up doing is he winds up blaming everything. You know, the, first, the first thing which you always do when you take over um, is you blame your predecessors for everything that's wrong, right? So, so he blames um, the, the previous government of... Menem and Cavallo, and he also blames all of the hedge funds and the bond investors and the IMF and all of these evil foreigners who, who caused everything to go wrong. Um, you know, and frankly, he was right. It really was their fault. Um, so, but what that means for, for the markets is you get this massive whiplash, right? On, the, on one day, you have this country with a dollar peg 
and which will bend over backwards and do anything in Christendom possible to pay its debt, even when it makes no sense to do so. And then the next day, you have this massively populist president who refuses to pay anything to anyone and is blaming everything on you know, those policies and just does the exact opposite. So the investors who had trusted Argentina now were being demonized, and it took years before Argentina was even, literally years, before Argentina even started thinking about, well, what are we going to do about this massive stock of debt that we've got, just got sitting there? Again, it's a sovereign. It can't restructure its debt. It can't go to a judge and say, and, and say like, we're declaring bankruptcy. It has to do something itself. It defaults in January 2002, and it's not until two, mid-2005 that it finally comes out with an exchange offer where it says, give us your debt, give us your old bonds, and we'll give you new bonds, which we will actually pay, because it's just not been paying on any of its debt. We'll give you new bonds, what I'm going to call the exchange bonds, and we'll, for every $100 of old bonds that you held, we'll give you about $30 in exchange bonds. That was the offer. Take it or leave it. You can take our 30 cents on the dollar offer, or you can get nothing. And they actually passed a law called the Lock Law, saying if you don't take this offer, you are going to get nothing. So that's how the fight starts, because the creditors are not happy about this. About 75% of them actually took the offer because they said, okay, fine, you know, you're sovereign, you can do what you like. 30 cents is better than nothing. But 25% of them, and 25% of you know, 80-some billion dollars is a lot of bondholders, um, just said, no, you know, I'm, I'm, we're going to hold out. We're not happy with this. We're, we're not going to take the deal. Um, and so the way that these sovereign debt restructurings normally work is that you put an offer on the table, you get a relatively high percentage of people saying yes, and then quietly after the deal goes through... You pay off the people who held out. You give them, every, you, you pay them off basically at 100 cents in the dollar. You either just start paying their coupon payments again or you just do a deal with them. That's the way it normally works. But it only works if the number of holdouts is low. And it only works if you're not an ideologue and you are okay with dealing with these people. And neither of those two conditions applied in. Um, in this situation. So Argentina had a very, very large stock of holdouts who it refused to deal with. It couldn't afford to pay them all off in full and it wouldn't even talk to them anyway, even if it could. So that's the sort of dramatic persona right there. You have the sovereign and the vulture, the biggest vulture, um, holdout vulture, two ways, two, um, you know, coterminous words. Um, the biggest vultures is, is Paul Singer, Elliot's associates, but there's a bunch of other ones as well. And so this goes on for about five years. You have Argentina paying its holdouts. Uh, you have the holdouts, sorry, Argentina paying its exchange bonds. You have the holdouts holding out and getting nothing and looking increasingly stupid. Argentina had a bunch of GDP warrants in the exchange bonds. They said, if, if our economy grows, then we'll pay you more. 
And it turns out, and no one really expected this, but Argentina's economy did quite well after 2005. And there was this big commodity boom, thanks to China. And Argentina's a big commodity exporter. And the GDP warrants on these bonds turned out to be incredibly valuable. And the people who went into the exchange at 30 cents soon saw their bonds worth, you know, twice that, three times that. And the people who held out were saying, wow, we were really stupid. We should have gone into the exchange. And so Argentina then reopens the offer in 2010. And a lot of the people who held out in the first place, after going eight years now without seeing a penny, eventually they capitulate. They go into the deal. And Argentina is now up to about 91%. It still has 9% of its bonds holding out, but everyone else has gone into the exchange bonds. Now at 9%, can it maybe start talking to the vultures? Can it try and do a deal with these people? Yeah. No, no, this is, this is still the Kirchner administration. At this point, it's Christina Kirchner, Nesta's wife, rather than Nesta, but it's the same thing, basically. And they still demonize the vultures. They still demonize the holdouts. And the holdouts, at this point, have been fighting since 2002. We're now up to about 2012. This is 10 years um, and you have to ask yourself, what kind of person is going to hold on to debt for 10 years and fight all the way in court and litigate with extremely expensive lawyers in New York court for a decade to try and get paid in full on, on, on this stuff against a sovereign, which by definition is sovereign and can do what it likes? And the answer is Paul Singer. <laughs> um, he, he has the money, he has the self-righteousness, and he has what you might call the vulture opportunity of a lifetime. It doesn't make, like, the, the fight that he's been fighting in New York court is, you know, I've heard estimates in the 100 to 200 million dollar range just for his legal fees. If you're holding out from the Dominica debt restructuring and you have 9% holdout from Dominica, you know, you've got threepence halfpenny. Like, your legal fees are going to be many multiples of your um, claim. Argentina was the only opportunity, basically, in the entire history of sovereign debt for someone to spend $100 million on legal fees and it's still to be only a fraction of the amount of money that they're owed. So this was the play that, um, that Paul Singer... Uh, saw and it was a you know I for one thought that it was a pretty stupid thing to do because I saw that the exchange bonds were doing well I saw that Argentina was sovereign and I also saw this thing called HIPOC there was a big trend internationally for debt relief and for quite big debt relief not for Argentina necessarily but for these heavily indebted poor countries some of whom would get deals writing down their debts completely. Sometimes private sector, private sector creditors would get one cent on the dollar in places like Angola. So, I mean, you know, so there's this trend for sovereign debts to be written down. Elliot Associates, Elliot Associates is bucking that trend. Um, and Paul Singer is playing this extremely expensive and very, very long litigation game, and no one really knows how it's going to end. And that's where things started going a bit wrong, because everyone knew, as I say, this like 
tension that the courts would always maintain between giving judgments on the one hand and with preserving immunity on the other hand. Everyone knew that's how it worked. But the longer that this Argentina litigation dragged on, and remember that Paul Singer was in court every week fighting, 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 trying to find stuff to attach, trying to be a nuisance. The longer it drags on, the more like you can't assume that the courts are going to do this. And when I say the courts, what I mean is a single octogenarian. This guy, Thomas Grisey, who's the judge in New York, he's overseeing all of the Argentina litigation. He's a grumpy judge in New York City, and he's been doing this for a decade, and he's been passing down orders on Argentina for a decade, and Argentina has been ignoring him for a decade, and he's getting more and more pissed off. (laughs) And this is a very human thing, and I frankly don't blame him so much for his completely idiotic things that he did, because you would probably do them too if you, you know, had to deal with Argentina thumbing its nose at you for that long. Um, So, he was frustrated. The Argentines weren't even pretending to negotiate, and eventually he... um, I can't really put it any other way than he basically dropped a thermonuclear device on the entire global financial system. It was, it was huge. Um, and this thermonuclear device was... It goes under the very boring name of an injunctive remedy. And the injunctive remedy was basically put together with a piece of duct tape and two pieces of string and this thing called the Paris-Passu Clause. So um, let me read you the Paris-Passu Clause because... This is all of the, what matters. When we, were, we bloggers were following this um, fight in, in, the, in the New York courts over the past few years, it would always be, you know, the hashtag would always be Perry Passu. We'd call it Perry Passu Palooza. It was, everyone got excited about Perry Passu. This is the Perry Passu clause in the Argentine bonds, which everyone got excited about. I'm going to read it to you. <clears throat> The securities will constitute direct, unconditional, unsecured, and unsubordinated obligations of the Republic and shall at all times rank pari passu and without any preference among themselves. The payment obligations of the Republic under the securities shall at all times rank at least equally with all its other present and future unsecured and unsubordinated external indebtedness. You got that? Yeah, of course you do. You understood that perfectly, didn't you? That's it. This is a piece of boilerplate which sits in every single bond issue that the world has ever seen, and no one knows what it means in the sovereign context. No one. There have been very long journal articles, you know, 80-page long journal articles where people go around asking anyone who ought to be able to answer this question, what does this mean, and no one can answer it. You know what it means in a corporate context, I can tell you what it means in the corporate context. That's quite easy, actually, where you, because it's all about bankruptcy. If a company declares bankruptcy, files for bankruptcy, then what it means is that these debts and those debts will be treated the same way. But if you can't declare bankruptcy, no one has a clue what it means. But it's sitting there anyway in the, in the bond documentation for no particular reason except for that it's a bond and so it needs a peri passu clause, apparently. And... What we know, what we do know is it's not a sharing clause. There are these things called sharing clauses, which basically say, and in the words of um, 
Andy Lowenfeld, who was this jurist in, in New York, that if you owe Tom, Dick, and Harry money, then you can't pay Tom and Dick without paying Harry. And if you, you know, pay 50 cents to Tom, you have to pay 50 cents to Harry. It's, it's, they're complicated sharing clauses. They don't look like this Parry Passu clause I just read. They're very explicit. They generally go on for pages. This is not a sharing clause. But somehow... Thomas Grisey managed to interpret it that, to, to mean that it's a sharing clause. And we also know, I mean, yeah, so this is the first thing which starts getting a bit weird. Like, where did he get this idea? It's not obvious. But obviously, you know, Paul Singer spent a lot of money trying to put this idea in his head. Um, eventually, when, it's, when they started, by the way, back in 2002, when this litigation started, I was there in the courtroom. Um, Argentina went up to Grisey and said, listen, can you just declare that this whole Parry Passu nonsense is not going to happen? Because Paul Singer had tried this stunt with Peru in the past, and he'd managed to find this court in Belgium, which bought this bizarre interpretation of the Parry Passu clause. And, um, and it had caused all manner of chaos with Peru, and so the Argentines were like, can you please just make a declaration right here and right now? that you're not going to start going crazy on Perry Passu. And before he could say anything, up jumps Elliot's lawyer, and, and, and Elliot associate says, oh, no, no, we are never going to try that. Don't worry about it. We want to have a negotiated settlement. We're not going to argue this Perry Passu argument. And Grisey believed him. Of course, they were lying. They were just waiting for 10 years before they... You know, um, pulled out this argument. And so in 2012, when we say that the height of his frustration with Argentina, he finds that Argentina has violated the Parry Passu clause, which, big work. You know, Argentina has violated every clause under the sun. Argentina has been ignoring everything which he's been asking them to do for a decade. If, you know, it's no big deal if he's managed to find one other clause in, in some bond document which they've managed to violate. Um, but what he does then is he comes up with this thing, and this is where I start talking about the thermonuclear device. He comes up with this Injunctive remedy. Um, so I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but I'm just going to mention that Grisey's reading of the Parry Passu clause is completely bizarre under so many different levels. Number one, he basically says that it's a promise never to restructure which doesn't make any sense. You have to be able to restructure your debts. No one can promise to never restructure because if you do promise to never restructure, then no one's ever going to go into an exchange, right? Because you should always hold out and just keep on getting paid on the old bonds rather than the lower-value new bonds. Um, they have to be possible. Um, and so what's happening now, I should just mention this, is that the... International Capital Markets Association has got new Parry Passu bonds, new Parry Passu clauses. It's saying, well, if you read this Parry Passu clause, it allows Thomas Grisey to come up with this bizarre interpretation. So we're going to give you a new boilerplate to put in your bond documentation, which won't allow Thomas Grisey to interpret it this way. But I mean, how you can put 
prevent a judge from interpreting anything they like anyway. They like, I have no idea. Um, they, they have this new clause, which is pretty well um, structured as far as it goes. Um, it's much less ambiguous, but it's not perfect because what you do if you're a country and you put this new pari passu clause in your bonds is that you're implicitly saying that there was something wrong with your pari passu clause and you're kind of giving a bit of ammunition to your potential future litigation opponents who are going to say who are going to obviously buy the old bonds with the old peri passu clause rather than the new bonds with the new peri passu clause, and they're going to say, well, obviously this clause is dangerous because the new bonds, they change the language. You know? So what you really want in the new language is a, is, is, is a sort of throat-clearing bit where you say, just like the old bonds, this peri passu clause doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Only in law, by the way, do you spend a huge amount of time just constructing boilerplate specifically so it means nothing at all. But that's apparently what we have to do. ICMA clauses don't say, don't have that. I can answer questions about ICMA clauses, but in any case, what's important here is the injunctive remedy, not the pari clause itself. And so what the injunctive remedy was, and this is, this is the thermonuclear device, the injunctive remedy is Thomas Guise coming in and saying, I'm not going to give you a judgment saying that you are owed the money that the bond documentation says that you're owed. I've done that for dozens of people over the past 10 years and it hasn't helped a bit. Instead, I'm going to hand down an injunction and this injunction is going to be aimed at everyone basically who is not Argentina. If I've ordered Argentina to do things, they've always ignored me. So now I'm going to order Bank of New York and Clearstream and Euroclear and all of and Citibank and basically every single financial institution in the world. I'm going to order Argentina that it can't pay any of its exchange bonds unless and until it pays off Elliott Associates everything that Elliott Associates is worth is, is owed. And anyone in New York or Europe or Argentina or anywhere who aids and abets Argentina in paying these exchange bonds, if they're not also paying the vultures, is going to be in contempt of court. So he's basically aiming this injunction not at Argentina, but at everyone else. That's the remedy. And that's, that's the crazy thing. And that's where, every, that's where the whole sovereign debt world just felt that it had fallen down a crazy Lewis Carroll rabbit hole. Um, what we say is saying, basically, to Argentina is you can be in default to Paul Singer. That's fine. But if you're in default to Paul Singer, you have to be in default to everyone. You can't pay anyone at all. All those exchange bonds that you've been paying for the past decade, you have to stop paying them. You can't pay your creditors anymore. You can't pay the money which you're legally obliged to pay just because you're in default to someone else. That was what he... He, 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 he formed this injunction. It was bonkers. And it got appealed up to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. He was nice enough to put a stay on the um, 
on the injunction until the Second Circuit weighed in. Um, but yeah, basically what he's saying is that if he can't get Elliot paid by punishing the guilty, then he's going to get Elliot paid by punishing the innocent. That's his great you know, idea. He, it doesn't make sense. He perverted the meaning of rateable payment, this idea which is in the Parry Passu clause that there's this like, rateable treatment bit in there. Um, because what that, what that says is that similarly situated creditors should basically be treated the same way. Um, but it's not fair. I mean, just, you know, intuitively it's not fair that someone who received 30 cents on the dollar in the exchange, um, if they get 30 cents and then someone else gets 300 cents, which is what Elliot was going to get with all the past due interest and everything like that, then that's not fair, right? 30 versus 300. But that, but rateable treatment is all about keeping things fair. There's, so it was, it was ugly. Um, he upturned the natural order of debt. So there's different flavors of debt in the world. There's unsecured debt, which is just, I promise to pay you. There's secured debt, which means that, um, you know, I promise to pay you, but if I don't pay you, you can take my house or my car or some asset. And then, even higher than secured debt, you have judgments. A judgment is, is, is higher than a secured debt because, um, you know, even if my house has burned down and my car has been stolen, you can take anything of mine. You can just take money straight out of my bank account. So, unsecured is lowest, then secured, then judgment. But now, in this weird sort of post-injunction Thomas Grisey world, um, Judgment creditors are not, are not the strongest. They're kind of the weakest, because they don't have a pari-passu clause. And the strongest is an unsecured creditor with the pari-passu clause, because they have access to this thermonuclear remedy that the secured creditors and the judgment creditors don't have access to. It, make, it makes no sense at all. Um, and he created this status of worse than default, basically, for, for debtors. That, that if you're in default to 9% of your creditors, then that's worse than being in default to everyone. And he's going to drop this thermonuclear bond on you. Uh, th- thermonuclear bomb on you, rather. So that's what we say. He's not making a lot of sense. And so then... It's okay. We have checks and balances. It goes to the grown-ups, right? The, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And their job is like when you get someone like Thomas Grisey being impetuous, they, they, they come in and they say, okay, hang on a sec. We understand that you're mad, but calm down. You can't do this. Um, you know, they, they keep their eye on the big picture. They keep their eye on the fact that New York is meant to be a financial center, right? Which is, you know, where, where things behave predictably and people understand how the um, financial system works and how the debt markets work. Um, they understand the big picture principles of sovereign immunity. Um, but, you know... And this is, this is where I actually start getting quite angry. This is why I'm much more angry at the Second Circuit Court of Appeals than I am at Thomas Grisey. This is why the ignoble, cow, ignoble cowards, and not Thomas Grisey, who's understandably angry, but rather 
the three judges on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, they are the people who upheld what Grisey did with a horrible piece of legal reasoning which ignores all of the chaos that they knew they were about to cause. Um, so, you know, there, there's, there's this American sort of exceptionalism in these, in, in, in its, in these rulings. At one point, um, Jonathan Blackman, who's Argentina's lawyer, he said that Argentina was basically behaving exactly the same way um, towards the U.S. courts as the U.S. would if you know, the Iranian courts had um, you know, made equivalent demands, which probably wasn't smart, you know, given the context, but it's true. They were taking their own interpretation of the law and they were using it to bind not only American institutions but European institutions, Argentine institutions, everyone in the world just because everyone needs to operate in New York, everyone has a branch in New York, no one can afford to be found in contempt of New York court. They kind of abused that power. Um, they, take another example. Like This is something which even Thomas Grisey hasn't been able to work out. His injunction is so badly formed, he said, I'm going to say, I'm going to say that you can't pay the exchange bonds unless you pay the holdouts, um, you, can, can, you can pay the local domestic bonds, which you issue domestically in Argentina. You just can't pay the international exchange bonds. What he either didn't know or didn't think about is that there were some domestic bonds which were in the exchange. And then those domestic bonds were reopened. And so Thomas Grisey has this major problem that he's saying, well, you can't pay half of that bond, but you can pay the other half. And it's the same bond that wasn't as fungible. I mean, none of this makes any sense. He's trying to force impossibilities on Citibank. Citibank's going up to him and saying, well, what are we meant to do? Are we meant to accept this coupon payment or not? And we say, keeps on saying, oh, I'll, give you, I'll let you do it this time, but next time you won't be able to. <laughs> He's done that like three times now. Um, you know, there's the trustee, the, the, the poor Bank of New York. And I honestly, it takes so much for me to feel sympathy for the Bank of New York. It's... <laughs> It's the most OTOs institution. They just sit there, these trustees, on their ass, and they do nothing, and they get paid a fortune for it, and they're useless. But I do feel for these people. Now, they have a contractual obligation to take the money which Argentina pays them and pay that money, which does not belong to them, and give it to the bondholders. And now they get, you know, Argentina's sending them this money, and they're like, what are we meant to do? You know, on the, on the one hand, we have to pay the bondholders. That's our contractual obligation. On the other hand, Thomas Grisey says he's going to find us in, in contempt if we, if we do that. So they're, they're caught between a rock and a hard place and, and uh, very upset about the whole thing. So this is what I'm talking about when I talk about ignoble cowardice. Argentina, you can understand where it's coming from. You know, Elliot, you can understand where they're coming from. They're saying, we bought this bond, we're owed this money, you have to pay us. It's very simple. Um, but the judiciary, especially the Second Circuit, they are the ones with the obligation to at least be intellectually honest. If you're going to rule on a certain issue, then at least be, at least be honest about what you're ruling and what you're ruling... Um, portends and, and implies. And that's what they didn't do. Um, 
you know, they, they said, oh, this doesn't matter. They actually said this in the room. They said, they said, oh, this doesn't really matter. This isn't an important precedent because there's this thing called CACs, collective action clauses. And with collective action clauses, all of these problems go away because you ju- the creditors just vote. And if you get 75% voting for restructuring, then they bind everyone else. This is crap. CACs don't, you know... Greece had a bunch of bonds with CACs. It tried to get its creditors to agree to do this. Only half, less than half, of Greece's bonds with CACs got restructured. Greece had to pay the rest off in full. The CACs are not the kind of panacea that the Second Circuit says that they are. Um, The Second Circuit also did, you know, it, it ignored Bank of New York completely. It said hey, if you've got a complaint, you can litigate the complaint. It's okay, you can come to us and then we'll have litigation. Of course Bank of New York is not going to litigate. It's a trustee, it never does anything. It's just going to do what it's told. But they take all of the legitimate complaints which Bank of New York had and it put in its amicus briefs to the court and it ignored all of them saying, oh, well, we can deal with those at another day in the full knowledge they would never actually deal with those another day. It just swept them under the carpet. Um, sovereign immunity is at the heart of this case is sovereign immunity there were again loads of amicus briefs from Brazil and Mexico and France and the IMF and even the US saying you can't side with Elliot in this case because it violates all these different principles of sovereign immunity and what did the second circuit say well that's interesting but I think that's probably for the Supreme Court to decide they ignored it and then, of course, what did the Supreme Court do? They ignored it as well. They said, oh, yeah, we're not going to take that case. <laughs> and, and then, most importantly, it's just the whole concept of sovereign credit itself. Credit in the financial sense, like, as opposed to interest rates. You know, credit meaning, like, risk. Up until this ruling... Uh, country had two different things, which if you were a bond investor or a ratings agency or something like that, if you were trying to work out what price you were willing to pay for a bond, you would look at the country's willingness to pay and you would look at its ability to pay. That's what you care about. If a country has the willingness and the ability to pay, then you can buy its bonds and you know that it's going to pay you. Argentina has the willingness, it has the ability, and it can't pay because this you know, random court in Lower Manhattan has decided that they're going to drop this injunction. It's, it, was ju- it just came from their field. No one expected it. And, and so the sovereign credit doesn't... It, you can't even measure it anymore because it's all contingent on actors who, you have, who have no predictability. You know, crazy octogenarians like Thomas Grisset. So at every level, from Grisset through the Second Circuit through the Supreme Court, which just punted completely and refused to even hear the case... The courts have completely ignored all of the substantive complaints that have been brought up by even the U.S. Treasury, but also the IMF in Mexico and Brazil and France. These, you know, you know, and any number of professors and learned people and what have you, right? They've just ignored them because they they, it they know what result they want. They can come up with some formulation which says that the result is that what Grise did was legal. I dare say it is legal. I dare say he's within his rights to do it. But they've punted on everything which is their actual job, which is to think about the implications of what they're doing. 
Because if this injunction can be handed down against Argentina, it can be something like it can happen to anyone. You know, they, they claim that this is a unique case, and in many ways it is a unique case. But, you know, the next one's going to be unique as well, right? There's nothing predictable. There's nothing, the, the rule of law is based on predictability. We don't have that anymore. So where does that leave us? The, where, where that leaves me, at least, is, is the, the really important thing when it comes to sovereign debt, and probably most other things, is pragmatism. Um, you might have read somewhere along the way that investment bankers are much more likely than most people to be psychopaths. This is, this is absolutely true. Uh, being a psychopath is just another way of saying that you're a deeply, deeply pragmatic person. Um, Look, just a you know, week ago at what the Swiss National Bank did. That was a pragmatic thing. It had this idealistic currency peg. They said, we want our currency to be weak. And then they realized that was going to be impractical, and so they unpegged. That was pragmatic. Look at the EU in general. The Stability and Growth Pact, the EFSF, you know, Mario Draghi's whatever-it-takes speech. These are pragmatic ways to keep the union together. You're look, you're, you have your eye on the big picture. You know. Um, or, you know what? Look at my favorite undercovered um, sovereign debt default. <laughs> so many of them these days. Ecuador in 2010. That was, that was the ultimate pragmatic default. It had the ability to pay. It just didn't have the willingness. It, and it, well, so you had this leftist president, Rafael Correa. He gets elected in 2006. He keeps on paying the debt quite happily until December 2008. You may remember December 2008. It was the height of the financial crisis. Everything is going crazy. And it turns out that most of Ecuador's bonds are held by a bunch of hedge funds who are in trouble with their prime brokers who are getting these margin calls and who are being forced to liquidate. And in a sort of opportunistic Machiavellian way, Ecuador swoops in and basically buys up all of those hedge funds' bonds for 20 cents in the dollar. Well, it finds a bank, Banco Pacifico, which, which buys up those bonds for 20 cents in the dollar. It doesn't do an exchange a bond exchange, then defaults on the debt, by the way. The, the reason why it forces the, the, the funds to puke up their debt is it defaults on its debt. Very tactically, very pragmatically, it just says, oh, I'm going to default. And probably it does a bunch of like, insider trading in the credit default swap market as well so that people get paid. You know? um, so it tactically defaults. It buys up the debt really cheaply at 20 cents on a dollar. It runs an auction, not a bond exchange, just an auction, saying, hey, anyone want to sell us their debt? We'll buy it back for 35 cents on the dollar. And this is the height of the financial crisis, and everyone goes, fine, take it. They get 91% of the bonds at 35 cents on the dollar, including the ones which were bought up at 20. So the bank you know, gets its 15 cent profit. Um, there's loads of corruption. What happens to the other 9%? Well, there's, they, they get mopped up. They, they, they buy a bunch more back at 50. They buy a bunch more back at 70. And then what happens um, six months ago, something like that, in 2014? They go back to the bond markets and borrow another $2 billion at less than 8%. They, 
That is how you do a default. <laughs> you know, Ecuador had the ability to pay but no willingness, which means it was in a strong position. Argentina, when it defaulted in 2001, it had the willingness to pay but no ability. It was in a weak position. And so when you're weak, you attract the sharks who smell blood. And when you're strong, you are the shark. You smell the blood in the hedge funds. That was the difference. So you have to be pragmatic. When, when push comes to shove, in every single bond restructuring, sovereign debt restructuring, the holdouts get paid in full. That always happens eventually. That's a pragmatic thing. If you're Argentina, you're an idealist, you know, because they're proud. And so they don't pay the holdouts, and then they wind up in this mess. Um, you know, if you're, if you're going to restructure, what you don't do is do what Domingo Cavallo does and pile so much debt on yourself that you're, you have no room for maneuver. If you're going to default, you want to do it from a position of strength. That's what Ecuador did. That's what Russia did when it repudiated its Tsarist debt in 1918, right? It was strong. You've got some Tsarist bonds from 1918, good luck, you're never going to collect on them. So, you know, the problem is that Argentina is idealistic. It was idealistic early on when it kept on paying its bonds even though it shouldn't have done. Um, lots of countries do that, and that's one of the big problems. That's one of the big problems why there's too much sovereign debt out there. It was idealistic in terms of the currency peg, pegging the peso to the dollar, one-to-one. Um, it was idealistic in terms of demonizing the foreign creditors. It's been doing that forever, by the way. Even in 1972, it was passing laws saying that um, it would subordinate foreign creditors. Um, and then, of course, it was idealistic in terms of refusing to ever even talk to its holdout creditors, the vultures. Of course you talk to them. That's what you do when you default. You talk to these people. And so... You know, that gets it labeled uniquely defiant in the terms of the Second Circuit and makes it easier for the courts to find against it. And then on the other hand, against Elliot, you have a hedge fund. A hedge fund, by their definition, are deeply pragmatic, right? They will do, they, they, they're not bound by any kind of idealistic honor. They do whatever they have to do to get paid, like break their promise so they're never going to use the Paris Passu argument or run around the world. Jurisdiction shopping, trying to find a, you know, a venue which will listen to their arguments. So we have this conflict between pragmatism, where you know, doing if you sometimes do the honourable thing, it's only because it makes sense from a self-interested perspective. On the one hand, and idealism, where doing the honourable thing is an important thing just in itself. You have to be honourable. And if you're if you have a war between a pragmatist and an idealist, the pragmatist is going to win. It has an unfair advantage at any, at any rate. And then, to make matters so much worse, the judges... I don't know why I keep on pointing back here when I'm talking about the judges. Anyway, the judges, they turn out to be this weird kind of idealists who sided with the pragmatists. They, they believe strongly and narrowly in the like, four corners of the contracts and the four walls of the courtroom and in nothing else. And... And when Argentina started saying that there was more to the world than the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, 
The Second Circuit responded with maximum aggression and just came down on Argentina like the ton of bricks because all they cared about was the Second Circuit. They didn't care about the rest of the world. They didn't care about the president. So the conclusion then is if you want to restructure its debt, do it from a position of strength and be evil. You know, I mean, the, the, Ecuador actually fired Cleary Gottlieb, or Argentina's lawyers, before they defaulted, and Cleary will never deal with them again. They just, they, they were so just working in bad faith, but they were very successful at it. Um, you know, you, if you're idealistic, you're going to get punished. It doesn't help to be high-minded. And if you're a sovereign debtor, then what you really want to be is, is Machiavellian. So, with that, I'll take some questions. Thanks, Felix. Um, why don't we collect, like, maybe, like, three questions or so at a time, and then, is that all right? Yeah? Um, so, I'll go... In short, Burgundy, you, um, and the woman here. Okay. So why don't you start? Hi, uh, Kieran Sopel. Thanks for your talk. Great, uh, great speech you made. Um, so in, in your speech, you, you said that, um, that the judge's decision uh, had implications that kind of totally upended the bond markets. And I wondered if you'd... Um, kind of say a couple more words on how the situation resolved, if it did, and um, <laughs> it didn't. Oh, okay. Well, and but what those implications are that must be kind of, you know, making their way out into the broader pool of sovereign sure. debt. Yeah. Thanks. Ah, thank you. Hello, my name's Jeremy Smith. I'm um, a lawyer by background, but involved in uh, economics outfits, and I've written a bit on this and share most of what you said. I, just one quick point and then one comment. Um, the, the point is I, I think you even underplayed the fact that uh, of Grisey's order um, that he ordered to pay 100% of principal plus interest to NML. And interest on interest. Uh, yeah. And interest on interest. Um, and as against, uh, if they were to, if Argentina was to pay even the current interest payment to the uh, exchange bondholders, and then he actually justified this as being equitable. I think that's what's particularly bizarre. Um, on the, the broader point, I, I, the l only thing I really disagree with is the cowardice point, because I think it's political. Um, in my view, uh, the, you've got a clear issue of the Robert Scalia Supreme Court, which refused to hear the appeal. You've got Republican judges all the way through, and you've got Paul Singer, who's the biggest, um, number one, whose company is NML is registered in the Cayman Islands, so it's a clear, obvious tax fiddle anyway, on top of all the other demerits of Paul Singer. The biggest uh, funder of, Paul, of Mitt Romney, having failed to get a more right-wing candidate in. And it seems to me that the, uh, the refusal to hear the appeal that was done by the uh, Scalia Court, the Robert Scalia Court, and secondly, the actual judgment that they did on um, sovereign immunity, which was a dreadful judgment in itself, and which Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the 
uh, only progressive one, made a really persuasive dissenting judgment, all tells me, and outside, this is a neo-colonialist act, which it's obvious to these intelligent lawyers that they're just feeding uh, the vulture, they're feeding Paul Singer, and it's a deliberate act of American policy, I'm afraid, is my own perception. So that's my... <laughs> more and then we'll... Um, hi, I'm Julia Savelli. I'm a journalist and ex-LSE student. Um, in the light of how the situation with Argentina hasn't really been resolved and also looking at Greece and all the talk we're having about actual uh, debt forgiveness, um, what do you think of the possibility of creating a sort of international uh, debt restructuring mechanism? It was attempted with the IMF, but it didn't really end up going anywhere. So your thought on that. Thank you. Okay, so taking those in order, the implications of this are, I hate to say this because it's meaningless, but no one really has a clue. There's one school of thought which you might, which certainly the IMF buys into, um, which which I call the Greece and Grise school of thought, which is that we've had these two big, chaotic, didn't work very well debt restructurings, and that if anyone defaults in the future, whichever country it's going to be, we know there is you know statistically certain to happen. They're happening more and more frequently these days, the sovereign defaults. They're just not going to be able to do a restructuring because there's going to be so much incentive to hold out because the holdouts or the potential holdouts are going to look at what Paul Singer's managed to get done and is going to look at you know, the, what this kind of analysis of the, polit- of the politics of the U.S. courts is, and they're going to say we're just going to hold out. And if everyone holds out, then you don't get any restructuring. If you don't get any, any restructuring, then you, you, know, you wind up in this horrible stalemate forever. So that's one potential implication. And the courts have tried to downplay that a little bit by saying um, Argentina is unique, but like, you know, people haven't really bought that. The fact is no one knows what, what the implications are um, so all, all I can t- tell you for sure is that the markets are weird. Um, the defaulted Argentine exchange bonds are not trading as though they're defaulted debt. They're trading on a yield basis, even though the yield is zero. You know? They're trading at sort of 70, 80 cents on the dollar, when normally defaulted debt, debt trades at 20 or 30 cents on the dollar. So the markets are expecting this to resolve itself somehow, and for the defaulted debt not to trade flat, you know, as, as defaulted debt normally does, but, but to trade on a yield basis on their coupons. So weird stuff is going on in Argentina. Um, there's hope in the markets that things will get resolved once this current president is no longer president and she gets replaced by someone who's a little bit more open. But I don't really see how that's going to happen. So I, I have no idea what's going to happen in the future. Um, I do know that the IMF is trying to bring back some, what they call SDRM light. You know, SDRM was this thing called Sovereign Debt Restructuring Mechanism, which the old head of the IMF, Ann Kruger, tried to do in the wake of the last time that Elliot pulled this done against Peru. Um, but the United States is the IMF's largest shareholder. It has veto power at the IMF, and it basically refuses to listen. It wants no part of any kind of 
supranational institution which can do anything. Um, international criminal court, nothing. Right? So if you try and say that the IMF is going to come in with some new powers and create exactly the kind of bankruptcy regime that doesn't exist and probably should exist, that's not going to happen. Instead, the IMF is trying to implement a new kind of um, sovereign debt order where countries default more frequently and less harmfully, that they do these things called reprofilings, which is a, um, a euphemism for default. But, um, but it's a not particularly dangerous default, and maybe you can come out of it more quickly, and everyone talks about Uruguay a lot. So, you know, um, one view of the future is that it's going to be complete chaos, and there's going to be massive defaults, and no one's going to be able to resolve anything. Another view of the future is we're going to get lots of Uruguays, and my guess is we'll be somewhere in the middle and that, you know, the IMF isn't going to get what it wants. Um, as for the question of the politics of the judiciary, American politics are very complicated. <laughs> uh, you know, as you know, you know the, even, even the executive branch isn't really speaking with one voice on this one. The, the view of the Treasury Department and the view of the Justice Department and the view of the State Department are all kind of at odds with each other. And then when the White House has to adjudicate and work out whether it's going to file a brief and what kind of brief it's going to file and what the Attorney General is actually going to say, um, there's a huge amount of politics in there. Um, so, you know, and, and there's no doubt that there's a huge number of very powerful Republican donors on the side of the exchange bondholders. You know, there was, there was a lot of Republicans filing amicus briefs on the side of Argentina in this case. So this isn't a party political, you know, red versus blue, donkey versus elephant kind of thing. Um, and so I, you know, you can say that it's political, but I don't know what, you know, I don't know what kind of politics this is. You know, as I say, Paul Singer is a pragmatist. He's not really a politician. I'll collect a few more. Robert, uh, Tim, and then Robert. Hello, Robert Wade. Um, I'm sure Anne Kruger would love the world to believe that she was head of the IMF, which is what you said. She was actually the number two. Number two is she was the um, senior American in the IMF, and it's true that Americans think of the IMF as simply an arm of U.S. foreign policy, um, <laughs> but it's not always the case. Um, and um, uh, you were very doubtful um, that the, there, there could be progress on a sovereign debt restructuring Regime, um, but um, it, it's worth noting, I think, that there is an attempt uh, underway now to uh, negotiate a sovereign debt restructuring regime through the UN um, in New York um, with UNCTAD, the UN Conference on Trade and Development, providing the secretariat for this. And of course, the Americans and also the top management of the IMF hate this idea that the UN should be involved in such things. But this effort is going to go ahead, and it might 
Uh, well, I would be interested to know, that's the first question to you. Do you think that there is any prospect at all of anything coming from this effort in the UN? And the second question is, do you think there's any prospect for um, giving some sort of legal basis for saying that sovereign debt must be uh, negotiated with an equity component, that is to say sovereign uh, loans to countries must be related to, or sovereign borrowings must be, uh, repayments on sovereign debt must be related to some uh, indicator of capacity to repay, such as, for example, GDP growth, which has been talked about now in the case of Greece, or export earnings, or some other indicator, which would give a slight degree of risk-sharing risk with the creditors so that the risk doesn't fall entirely on the debtors, which does strike me as completely crazy, but that has been the situation. So what is the prospect for giving some sort of legal um, foundation to the idea of um, uh, sovereign debt, which is, uh, whose repayment is related to uh, exports or well, GDP. It's not, it's not a new idea. Um, with the UN UNCTAD thing, I did mention that the um, Security Council 14, Resolution 1483 in 2003 really helped the UN, really helped Iraq restructure its debt. Um, but in order to do that, you need the Security Council. UNCTAD isn't good enough. Um, and as we know, you know, just as the U.S. has a veto, the IMF also has a veto at the Security Council. So you, have, you run into exactly the same veto problem in both places. Um, as for the equity component, we've tried it. It doesn't work. Um, all of the Brady bonds pretty much from oil-producing nations like Nigeria and Mexico um, had these equity components, these oil warrants. Um, the Argentine restructured bonds in 2005 had GDP warrants. Um, and what happens when these things get issued? They, they are valued at zero. In other words, the country doesn't get any benefit from, give, from giving up its equity. Its equity is, value, is, is, is worthless. So if you can't sell equity at a decent valuation, it's not going to work. It would be great if it did, but it, it, no one's been able to do it yet. Robert Schiller has an idea called Trills, which... Uh, horrible, horrible idea, um, where you, you, instead of issuing bonds, you issue a thing called a trill, which is a promise to pay one trillionth of GDP per year. But it, it's a dreadful idea, because if long-term interest rates fall below the um, GDP growth rate, the value of the trills is actually infinite, and you wind up having these incredible, incredibly massive obligations which you can't afford to repay. So there are, people would love to do this. People would love to move from debt to equity. And in general, I think it's a great idea that the world global economy should try and have more equity and less debt. But in the case of sovereign debt, I think it's really hard, practically. If it is being talked about right now, in the case oh, yeah. of Greece. Yep. Yep. Look, people love to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, while all this has been going on, they have actually been able to sell sort of new bonds. So I kind of question the old paradigm that uh, you know if you default, there won't be any buyers because you, you're starting to get um, different buyers and different players. You know, China is probably looking at um, changing its um, kind of proportion and actually moving out of um, sort of American bonds. So I, I kind of question that we actually are in this new um, sort of phase of actually who's actually going to. Um, be buying the bonds, and I think I think that's that's a very 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 good point. That when people like me talk about this, what we're talking about is um, you know global bonds issued in New York and London, and obviously Argentina hasn't been issuing those, um, although Ecuador did. But increasingly, debt is being issued domestically, um, and in, and obviously in Argentina, the domestic debt is worth more than the foreign debt, which never used to be the case. And so what we might be doing is just moving back to this world of domestic debt and domestically issued bonds, and you take all of the foreign exchange risk and you take all of the, um, you know, the risk that your money isn't going to be allowed to leave the country, the expropriation risk and all of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it's entirely possible. And then, of course, you're absolutely right that countries like China, you know, Ecuador is at this point more or less a wholly owned subsidiary of China, you know, as is large chunks of sub-Saharan Africa. You... You know, the, the debt starts becoming a geopolitical tool rather than a commercial transaction. And that's happening too. I mean, it's obviously happening in Greece. So we've we're, we're got to be wary of time, but I, there's a lot of hands. So you and then and both of you back there. I, I wouldn't mind a question myself if time permits, but I'll let the audience. Uh, Tim Jones from the Jubilee Debt Campaign. Um, the picture you painted is one where things used to be okay and then the Argentina case has made the debt system all messed up. I mean, we have a different take. The Argentina case is ridiculous, but the whole system has been messed up for decades. And one of the many factors that's why countries keep on restructuring and then you never get a resolution to a debt crisis. One of the others that hasn't been mentioned is that the debts that are owed in bonds are only a small part of the debt market. So for developing countries, it's less than 40% of debt is owed as bonds. So you've got other kinds of private debt, but you've got all the official sector debt as well. And this is another reason why some, a much broader kind of debt workout mechanism is needed. The, the Robert mentioned the UN process, and the General Assembly has voted to start this. Developing countries are very keen, so they could potentially set up a debt workout mechanism in Hong Kong, start issuing debt in Hong Kong and leave New York and London themselves. We'll see whether they go that far. But that would be an option. But then just one of the final legal point is that with vulture funds attacking the HIPIC countries where private debt wasn't included in the HIPIC debt relief, in the UK we got the law passed so that um, the debt restructuring had to apply across the private sector. So that legal precedent has been set. So there are also other ways of dealing with these. If you want to enforce a debt restructuring, you can do it. It's happened in the UK for HIPPICS. It happened in Greece for Greek bonds. And so that's one other option too. Yes, hello. My name is Luciano Figari. I'm a master's student of finance and development at SOAS. And I would like to know, well, I would like to raise a point about uh, the fact that developing countries, they usually pay higher interest rates than, than developed countries because of the country risk premium. So what's, what's the point of, of them paying higher interest rates if then the international courts will, will force them to, play, to pay and there is no risk of default? 
And the other thing uh, that I would like to, to ask is, like, what are your expectations of the ability of Argentina to borrow in the future once uh, an agreement is solved, uh, considering, well, your experience as, your experience as a financial journalist and, uh, well, that traditionally, like, for example, Ecuador has had no problem in, in going back to the international markets. <laughs> well, I had a few problems. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, it was, it was kind of, I mean, right now... Any, any country in the world can borrow. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, look at the interest rate on Spanish bonds. Obviously, there's a massive credit risk there, and they're still paying it's still like 0.5% 10-year bonds or something. So you can't really look at what's going on right now in Ecuador and say, well, obviously, they're being able to borrow. Anyone can borrow right now because the world is insane right now. Um, you know, there's always credit risk. And... Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. The way that we measure credit risk is, is you know, is becoming more political. Um, you know, and it always has been to a certain degree that you have to worry about the degree. You know, you have to price in the degree to which countries are going to get bailed out. So that we had the Mexico crisis in 1995, and the bondholders got paid off in full because they got bailed bailed out by the U.S. Treasury. Basically, on the other hand, you know, the politicians can go the other way, like you know the Jubilee campaign wants them to do, we just say, well, everyone has to write off all of their debt. So, you know, politics can slice both ways. Um, political loans, bilateral loans, are always political by definition. So they're not, you know, written at market rates. They're written at political rates. If China is lending money to Ecuador, it's not based on some market-based uh, calculation of, you know, willingness to repay. So there's, I think, yeah, we're, we're moving to a sort of more complex and more political world. And I think that these attempts to make things more predictable through the UN or any, any other organization um, sort of fly in the face of that general um, trend of, of, of complexity and politicization. Hi there. Uh, I'm Daniel Rosario from the Argentina Research Network. Um, I just wanted to pick up on something about the... You were talking about the flex... Uh, Argentina not being flexible enough in its approach to negotiations with the vulture funds or the holdouts. Um, I'm, I'm not sure it, it could have been any more flexible for the simple reason that under the Peripassi clause that you mentioned and also under the Rufo clause, which you didn't mention, um, any kind of improvements in conditions that Argentina could have paid to the 9% holdouts after 2010 or the 25% of holdouts after 2005, they would have also in fact, would offer those, uh, that, that increase, if you like, or the same conditions to the other um, 75 and 91% of the um, bondholders. That would have cost Argentina tens of billions of dollars, which it surely couldn't have afforded to do without going kind of into default again. Um, so, yeah, what we're talking about here is a thing called the RUFO Clause, also known as the Most Favoured Nation Clause. RUFO stands for Rights Upon Future Offers. They're basically Argentina promised in its bond exchange that if it paid Paul Singer a better deal than it paid the exchange bondholders, and the exchange bondholders would automatically get the same deal. Um, which, yes, if they actually honoured that clause, would cost them an enormous amount of money, but frankly, no one believed that that was enforceable. One more. Yeah. I had a quick question for you, just in relation to uh, what you think uh, is going to happen in markets this year. Oh, we can't hear you. Sorry. Uh, 
sorry. Um, I had a question just in relation to what you think is going to happen to markets in 2015. You know, it feels like we're a little bit like a frog being slowly boiled alive with the same issues coming up every year, 2013, 12, 11, the same issues with China, U.S., etc. And I just uh, would like to just hear your opinion on kind of your outlook, if you have one. <laughs> market forecasts are not my thing. Um, yeah, I have no idea what's going to happen to markets. But, yeah, I think, I think we're obviously going to have a lot of politics, especially in Greece. So, um, yeah, what was it? 2013 was the year of Greece, right? So we'll have an, it skips a year and then it's going to be 2015 again. Hey, yes. You keep on raising your hand and putting your hand away. You have to make yeah, Okay, well, he's... I think we have time for these last two, and I'll... After this fiasco, why would any uh, nation-state um, enter into a contract selling their sovereign bonds with the clause allowing for a U.S. jurisdiction decision? You know, it's, it would be... Yeah, that's an incredibly good question, right? So, so everyone said that if the Second Circuit ruled as it did, then that would be the end of nations issuing under New York law because none of this would have happened in London. And this is clearly an area where London is much, much better than New York. And so why not just issue all of your bonds under London law instead of under New York law? Because it's much more predictable and you know what's going to happen. And they could on issuing under New York law, which is one indication that the markets don't take this so seriously, that, that, that they, you know, for all that people like myself love to nerd out about it, that in, when push comes to shove, the markets kind of believe that Argentina is an outlier. Or maybe they just think that all of the post-default mess is something they just don't ever think about when they buy the bonds, because by the time the country defaults, they'll have sold the bombs to someone else. I have no idea. But you're right. Everyone thought that this would be the end of New York as an issuing jurisdiction, and it completely wasn't. You have time for one more? Sure. Hi, Tom Jeffrey from the News Hub. This is a completely non-specialist question, um, but this is an international development lecture. Um, it goes back to your question about um, debt jubilees. Um, I know one of the reasons why in the 1970s and 80s official debt as well as commercial debt was being, you know, was, was being considered for forgiveness was because African economies just weren't growing. So, you know, it comes back to the connection between economics and finance. You know, if we're running the financials of these African economies into the ground again and again and again, then we're never going to be able as Western financial institutions to make money there. And I just wonder whether with the south of, south of Europe, this question kind of comes up again. You know, if we keep pounding away at the Greek economy, meaning that, you know, Greece can't invest in, you know, a sustainable basis for economic growth, um, we're not going to get to the point where, you know, Greece is turning profit. It makes sense for northern European financial institutions to invest. I mean, is there a, is there a case beyond all of the, the kind of pragmatic you know, it's sort of psychopathically yeah. pragmatic. You're, you're, going to hear, you're going to hear a lot about 1953 in the next few months, which was the year when Germany got its massive debt relief. And that huge debt relief in 1953 for Germany laid the groundwork for the German post-war economic miracle. And there's definitely going to be a lot of people saying that the same thing should happen to Greece. And because most of the debt in Greece is official sector debt, that the EU, because it's mostly EU, should just forgive a whole bunch of the debt. 
I'm not completely sold. Um, largely because the debt burden in Greece is not that harmful. Um, it's huge on the debt-to-GDP level. The, it's clearly unsustainable. It's clearly impossible that Greece will ever pay it back. But in terms of the amount of money it needs to write in terms of checks every year, it's relatively modest. So it's, on a stock level, it's crazy. But on a flow level, it's fine. And it's still borrowing... It's still a net recipient of fl- inflows from the EU. It's not like it's paying back more than it's getting in. So so long as it's still getting money in from the EU, um, the EU is going to want to keep that stock there as a control mechanism, basically. In order to get its 1953 deal, Germany had to agree to a whole bunch of reforms which it implemented. Greece is obviously not under a serious government going to agree to any, any such reforms. It wants to reverse the reforms it's already done. So given that the EU is going to want to keep as much control as it can over Greece, and the way to have control over a country is to own a lot of its debt. So politically, I, I, I don't buy it. I mean, yes, I think you're right in an ideal world. Obviously, Greece would have less debt than it does. Um, but how do you get there from here? And, and why is it in Germany's interest to write off that debt? It's going to be almost impossible to persuade the Germans of that. Great. All right. Well, Felix, I'm glad I um, sent you an email out of the blue in July. Thank you very, very much for coming. Um, It was a really enjoyable night. Thank you.